0: Well, good morning, everyone, uh, both here and at home. Uh, keep your Bibles open if you have them uh, with you to 1 Peter 5, and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all grace. Help us to hear your word this morning, and help us to obey what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Are we there yet? Every family who's been on a long car trip knows those four little words. Are we there yet? I remember one of our long family car trips growing up. It ended in a memorable way. We were headed up the coast to Crowdy Head. The six of us packed into our family odyssey with a trailer on the back. Dad was driving. Our trip conversation went very roughly, something like this. Dad, are we there yet? No. Well, it's a bit squishy back here. More time passed. Someone else had a go. Dad, are we there yet? Not yet. More time passed, and things began to descend. She's stupid. He's being mean to me. That's enough. Thank you from the front. More time passed. Mum, her seat's reclining all the way back. Well, your father's trying to concentrate. Yeah, but that's because he keeps bumping my seat. Well, we're just trying to find the right street. Well, can you tell her to turn the air vents back to us? Dad, why are we at a dead-end street? Because we just need to turn around. But are we there yet? Because you said it would only be for a little while. Crunch! Silence. A long silence. For a very long time, an awkward silence. Until the, braver, the youngest brave, bravely said, Mum, I think the trailer hit the car. Thanks, Oliver, no one else dared say another word. Well, we've come to the end of our sermon series in 1 Peter, and it's called The Journey Home. And as we come to the last chapter, chapter 5, Peter is concerned that you and I don't jackknife our Christian faith, like our trailer, but at the final hurdle as they suffer. But first, a very quick reminder of where we've come in this series. Right throughout this letter, Peter has been determined... To remind these Christians scattered throughout the provinces, remember, remember, remember who you are and where you're going, who they are. Chapter 1, elect and chosen, born again into a living hope, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. Chapter 2, living stones, being built together, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And where are they going? Remember what he called them back in the first verse of the letter? Exiles. Why? Because this world isn't their home. Chapter 1 verse 4, They've been given new life into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Where? Kept in heaven for you. Peter's readers have to remember that. Heaven is their home where Christ is. And in the meantime, they're to expect that the Christian life is a bumpy journey. It's filled with sufferings. And that's been a key theme that we've seen the whole way through. Chapter 1, verse 6. Now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But particularly the trials that these Christians were experiencing came not as Pressure inside from within, like my car trip story, but rather pressure from outside. Christians being hated for living holy lives and proclaiming Christ. And remember some of Peter's examples? Chapter 2, verse 12, the pagans accusing them of doing wrong. 2.15, being spoken of ignorantly by foolish people. 3.16, being maliciously spoken against and slandered for their good behavior in Christ. And remember last week, 4 verse 12, Peter said, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come upon you. The journey isn't easy, but nor should they expect it to be. And that's why Peter has written this whole letter to them. Chapter 5 verse 12, to encourage and testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. In other words, his whole letter has been a summary of God's grace to them about who they really are in Christ, about the great salvation that's been achieved for them by Christ. But all the time, Peter's reminded them, look forward. Look forward even as you suffer opposition now and remember where you're going to be home with Christ. Why? Because he wants them to make it home safely together. And as we come to this last chapter in the letter, the question I want you to ask yourself today is this, how are you and I going to make it home safely together so that we don't jackknife our Christian faith at the last hurdle? Peter's answer in chapter 5 is pretty simple, in a sentence, we need future-minded leadership, we need future-minded humility, and we need future-minded resistance let's take them one at a time firstly future-minded resistance verses 1 to 4 having just reminded these Christians scattered that their suffering is to be expected this side of Jesus's return why because it is a sign that God's judgment has already begun with his own household take a look with me from verse 1 To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Who are these leaders? In these two verses, Peter describes them as elders, shepherds, and overseers. Firstly, elders. It's a word that emphasizes their age, they are older in contrast to the younger's he mentioned in verse 5. They are men rather than women, because the Greek word is masculine. They are plural rather than singular, because there is a shared oversight of God's flock. And Peter himself identifies with them here as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings. Possibly meaning that Christ, he saw Christ beaten and crucified, though in fact he fled the scene, So he may mean a witness in the accents of a preacher of Christ's sufferings and a sharer in them. In either either case, he's a future-minded leader who's looking ahead to the glory still to be revealed. Secondly, elders have a basic role description in verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock. The same word here is used in our English word, pastor. Pastor. Remember Peter's restoration in John 21, three times. Peter, do you love me? You know that I do. Feed my sheep. A pastor is a shepherd who loves Jesus and keeps teaching the word of God to his people. And thirdly, these appointed shepherd leaders have the job of watching over God's flock. The original word is episkopos, where we get our English word bishop from in our Anglican context, but Peter's not really interested in laying down a denominational pattern here. Instead, he uses all three words to describe church leaders interchangeably in the same breath. And if you go over to Acts 20, verse 28, Paul does much the same thing there too. Rather of much greater importance to Peter is how they go about their key job description. Shepherd God's flock. And that's his key action point for these leaders. And I'll tell you why this matters for us today. Because in our context, most of us are not elders. Like Dave is in his role as presbyter, rector, senior minister here. Like some of the other ordained staff, male staff sharing oversight here. But rather Peter's first readers, we are like them. Listening in so that we get to hear the elders job description why because this is the kind of leadership we need to endure difficult times of opposition together this is the kind of leadership we should encourage if we're to make it through a journey that's bumpy this is what we should be praying for in those who lead over us but i'll also add that as even though i've singled out the paid ordained team of men on staff here as peter's primary audience which they are, I think it's still right to a degree to see these principles applying much more widely too across all forms of spiritual leadership in a big church like this one because naturally some of the responsibility for teaching and pastoral care ends up being delegated uh, um, to other leaders among you by elders. And often it is with that same dynamic of the elders, the elders, verse 1, to the younger's verse five, whether in age or spiritual maturity. So, if you are a growth group leader, a women's ministry leader, a youth ministry leader, a kids and Christ ministry leader, or something similar, pay attention to Peter's principles too. He describes them with three knots and three butts. Look at them with me in verse two. Not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. In other words, we need church leaders who shepherd not begrudgingly, but not greedily, not kingly with a crown now, but rather willingly, eagerly, and waiting for a crown from Jesus later. In verse 4, And how good is this day going to be? When the chief shepherd appears, and you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Future minded leaders love God's flock with God's word. They're looking ahead and they want everyone to make it home safely. Each week, my wife Jess works part time as an occupational therapist, and so on Monday mornings, she drives the long journey over to the eastern suburbs to drop our son Archie to be looked after by my parents for the day while we're both at work. And each week, Archie carefully chooses some of his soft toys to make the journey uh, journey with him. But every so often, one of the soft toys doesn't quite manage to make the journey home safely. And for the rest of the week, we will hear about the soft toy that did not make it home safely, There'll be tears and sad faces and longing cries for Bear or Peter Rabbit or, worst of all, Baba the sheep. Stuck with Grandma for the week. And he'll be looking ahead to the future. I'm sure if he could drive over, he'd be there by Tuesday in a flash, longing for Monday to come around. Why? Because Archie has a pastor's heart. He loves his flock. And it's important to him that everyone makes it home safely. Well, how much more so should that be true of our church leaders too? If you're in church spiritual leadership here, you bear some responsibility for sheep whom we've been told in Acts 20 verse 28 were obtained with the very blood of God. So ask yourself this week just a couple of heart check-in questions. Do I still love these sheep? Am I feeding them God's word? Am I modeling well to them? And in my heart of hearts, am I convinced and longing for Jesus to return? And for the rest of us, let's eagerly receive, support, encourage and pray for those who lead over us. Because if you and I are to make it home safely, we need future-minded leaders. Well, secondly, future-minded humility. Verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Peter turns from church elders to the church youngers, likely young men in particular, and he says, similarly, you too have a role to play in a community that's under pressure, Youngers are to be subject to those charged with shepherding them. And notice he puts it kind of bluntly. He doesn't spell out all the reasons why it's to be so. No, he just says it because that's what they need. And he moves on. Elders, shepherds, youngers, be subject and now everyone. Humble yourselves. Verse 5 continued. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because... God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In other words, you and I are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We're not to compete or to look down on others. Or to think of ourselves as better or worse than another brother or sister in Christ. We're to humbly serve like Jesus did. Why? Proverbs 3 because God opposes the proud person, but He gives grace to the humble. And Peter's point is don't make God your enemy. Rather, depend on God for grace, the grace that we all need. And verse 6, Peter says, To suffering and persecuted Christians, put yourself and everything you are going through under God's mighty hand. That means trust Him with the future, like Jesus did hanging on on a cross, that God may lift you up in due time. Even if that means in the age to come. That's future-minded humility. And Peter guides us, I love that he guides us in verse 7. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's a verse I love. It's a verse I love because it acknowledges something I feel every day. There are things that I'm anxious about, things that I'm fearful about, things that make me feel like a bit of a stress ball, or that weigh on me in one form or another. And Peter tells me exactly what to do with all of it toss it all on God. Everything you're tense about, everything you're worried about, tell him about it. In fact, tell him all about it. Because you know what? Not only is he powerful enough to handle it, he also actually really cares about us. And he does, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life who's the safest person on the journey home the person who clings to God in everything who's the most vulnerable person on the journey home the person relying on themselves to get the job done which leads us thirdly to future minded resistance in verses 8 to 12 look with me verse 8 Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. A couple of times now in my married life, I've had the unfortunate experience of being woken up in the middle of the night, usually by an elbow from Jess, prompted in response to a noise that's strange and that needs to be investigated. And to be honest, I, for one, am very thankful to say that each time this has happened, to my extreme relief, it has turned out to be a false alarm of one sort or another, rather than an intruder prowling around our place. Because let's be real, you can only feel so brave when you're dressed in your pyjamas, venturing out in the dark with a phone light and whatever you could grab that seemed hard, but you could carry it with one hand. I tell you what, though, there's a whole different level of alertness that goes on from sleep to walking around the house looking when you realize there's a potential threat in the family home. It's very hard to go back to sleep, too. And the same is true, I reckon, for a sheep or a shepherd who realizes a lion is prowling around the flock. Peter is saying, stay switched on. Think clearly as a Christian because our journey home is anything but neutral. C.S. Lewis famously said about the devil there are two equal and opposite errors Christians are prone to when it comes to the devil. One is to disbelieve his existence altogether, the other is to be excessively interested in him. Now, I reckon our temptation is not the second error of attributing demonic power behind basically everything but do we ever lean too far the other way? This passage reminds us that the devil is real. He is our enemy. He stands behind every evil intention of everyone who hates Christians. But we should also remember that the devil is a defeated enemy. In the language of James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, practically, what does it look like to be alert. I think it looks like knowing how the devil typically operates. He typically operates by being true to his name. He is literally the adversary. He brings legal charges against someone. He is the one who is totally opposed to God and his people. And he's an accuser. He'll remind you of your worst sins. He's a liar. He'll tell you, God doesn't care for you. He's a slanderer. He'll use others to remind you of your insecurities, a relative to scoff at you when you turn down a drink at a dinner party, a student who mocks you for your outdated gender views, a boss who's angry that you used annual leave for church activities, a neighbor who's offended by your ethical stance and spreads the word. The devil would love nothing more than that you and I forget altogether that this is not our true home. So what should we do in response? Peter says, resist him. Standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And this is a word for us today, in the days ahead. Stand firm expect that it may get harder to be a Christian who's committed to God's word and his gospel in our society around us as we proclaim Christ and as we seek to live holy lives. But as we do, we remember that we don't stand alone. And all the time, verse 10, where to be future-minded, look with me. Because the God of all what? Grace. Who called you Where? To his eternal glory in Christ. After when you have suffered a little while, will himself who? God himself will restore you, make you strong, and firm and steadfast. And that's how we do it. That's how you and I get home safely together. We need future minded leaders who look to God for the strength they need to shepherd. Future-minded humility, because we take our example from Christ and serve others, not ourselves. And we need a future-minded resistance. Alert to our enemy, the devil, who wants to destroy our faith, standing firm in God's gospel, confident that he himself will get us home safely. And lastly and briefly, you'll see in those last few verses... There are some final greetings. Silas, who appears to have helped Peter scribe the letter. She who is in Babylon sends greetings. Is probably a covert way of speaking about the church in Rome or an individual. Mark sends his regards. And last verse, greet one another with a holy kiss, a kiss of love. And these days I reckon Peter would be all right with a covert handshake too. So are we there yet? No, we're on a journey home together. It's not going to be an easy ride, but that's no reason to fail at the final hurdle. For soon we will be home with Christ. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.